afternoon and welcome to the 131st of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today I discuss COVID-19 and the difficulties with counting and memorializing the dead in a pandemic with Jacqueline Ornamont. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 21st, 2020, there are 31,110,407 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 30,316,394 cases reported on Friday. 6,816,046 of those cases are reported in the United States. That's up from 6,710,585 reported Friday. There are now a total, according to Johns Hopkins University, now there are a total of 199,636 deaths reported in the United States, up from 198,197 reported on Friday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now with a story out of Louisiana headline. Some Louisiana nursing homes are undercounting coronavirus deaths, coroner data reveals by Gordon Russell. This appeared in NOLA.com yesterday, September 20th. At least eight residents of the Maison Orleans nursing home in Uptown New Orleans have died from the coronavirus, according to records provided by the Orleans Parish Coroner's Office. The State Department of Health only lists three Maison Orleans residents among Louisiana's 5,172 COVID-19 deaths. A similar disparity exists with the figures at Metairie Healthcare Center. The Jefferson Parish Coroner's Office shows 17 residents there have been lost to the coronavirus. The state's dashboard only lists 12. It's not clear what's behind the discrepancies. Officials at both nursing homes declined to provide information on their data collection and reporting or rationale for the different counts. The state's numbers are reported by the nursing homes, while the coroner's offices, which by law must be notified of all coronavirus deaths, generate their own numbers. It's very concerning, said Denise Botcher of AARP, a group that has long argued that Louisiana relies too much on nursing homes to care for older adults. It should concern elected officials. It should concern elected officials and families and all of us who plan to get older, quite frankly. Our strategies are only as good as our data. If deaths are being underreported for whatever purpose, that's a problem. The question is, do we have the best data? If the answer is no, we just don't have that luxury to say that's okay. While the cause of the discrepancies is unclear, the vast majority of Louisiana nursing homes, including both Maison Orleans and Metairie Healthcare, are for-profit businesses that compete for customers. Their ability to contain COVID-19 and keep residents safe from an infectious disease will likely be a metric that future residents and their families will examine closely. 
The inconsistencies in reporting deaths at Louisiana nursing homes appear to go well beyond the glaring disparities found at these two facilities. In fact, the State Department of Health keeps aggregate data on nursing home deaths, and it shows that 2,225 Louisiana nursing home residents have died of the coronavirus, according to spokesman Kevin Litton. That works out to 43% of the deaths recorded in the state today. But that total comes from the Office of Vital Records, a subset of the Department of Health, which gets its data from coroners. Nursing homes have only self-reported 2,044 COVID-19 deaths to the state, meaning that nearly one in 10 nursing home deaths is missing from the state's public dashboard. The data compiled by the Office of Vital Records, which state officials consider the gold standard, is not made public except in the aggregate, Litton said. Efforts by NOLA.com to scrutinize more closely how coronavirus deaths are reported around Louisiana have been frustrated by a number of factors, none larger than the unwillingness of most of the 64 parish coroners to provide detailed information on COVID-19 deaths in their jurisdictions. Though state law makes clear that data is a public record. The Times-Picayune and The Advocate newspapers filed public records requests with every coroner in the state. Some never responded, while most who did replied that they would charge $7.00 for each death record, meaning it would cost tens of thousands of dollars to collect the data statewide. A few coroners, including those in Jefferson, Orleans, Washita, and Tangapoa parishes have been more helpful, providing the information either for free or at a more reasonable cost. The most recent death of a Metairie Healthcare Center resident occurred on May 27, according to the Jefferson Parish Coroner, and the most recent death of a Maison Orleans resident was May 11, the Orleans Coroner said. In other words, it's been almost four months since a resident of either nursing home died, and yet the state's public tallies still don't come close to matching those of the parish coroners. The nursing home industry is among Louisiana's most powerful political lobbies, using its influence in the capital to secure favorable reimbursement rates and to block efforts to boost home-based health care, which are backed by groups like AARP and favored by many seniors. AARP argues that Louisiana's disproportionate reliance on nursing homes has had deadly consequences during the pandemic because seniors living at home might have been less vulnerable than those in group settings. When the pandemic began, Governor John Bell Edwards's administration started reporting clusters of cases at specific facilities, but the administration then stopped doing that for a period of weeks. A change officials said was not sought by the industry. In mid-May, amid pressure from legislators and a federal requirement that such data be reported to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, The Edwards administration again began collecting data from nursing homes and posting it weekly. It was the public's first detailed look at the vastness of the toll in nursing homes where roughly 40% of Louisiana deaths have occurred. Metairie Healthcare is owned by Ronnie Goh, who owns a number of other nursing homes and is also the president of the powerful Louisiana Nursing Home Association. He's also among the most prolific donors to Louisiana political campaigns in recent years, contributing heavily to many legislators and giving more than $142,000 to Edwards' 2015 campaign alone. Maison Orleans is owned by Bob Dean, a Baton Rouge developer who owns several other nursing homes. Maison Orleans has a one-star rating equating to much below average on the federal government's five-star scale. Metairie Healthcare has a four-star rating. Bosher of AARP said it's imperative that the public and policymakers have access to the best data that exists. We need to ask what we are really we need to ask what we are really doing to fix these systemic problems in nursing homes. 
or are we just leaving it to chance, Botcher said. It has to be a data-driven solution. If you don't have accurate data, it's hard to make the right recommendations moving forward. Okay, let's turn to our discussion for today. I'm really excited to speak with my guest, Jacqueline Wernemont is Distinguished Chair of Digital Humanities and Social Engagement and Associate Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Dartmouth College. She is an anti-racist feminist scholar working toward greater justice in digital cultures and a network weaver across humanities, arts, and sciences. Her efforts to understand computing cultures and advance more just approaches extends beyond the writing of traditional academic books into public engaged scholarship. This has included writing for popular outlets, multimedia installations, and leading projects on privacy, intersectional approaches to technology and data, and creative communication of computing infrastructures. Her first book, Numbered Lives, Life and Death in Quantum Media, came out with MIT Press last year. It uses a two-part structure to historicize the counting of life and death in Britain and the United States. She's also the co-editor of the recent book, Bodies of Information, Intersectional Feminism and Digital Humanities with Elizabeth Loesch. Jacqueline, thank you so much for coming on COVID Calls today. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. I'm really uh, looking forward to the conversation. Well, let's let's jump right in and, and let's start the way we usually do, just to find out where you're calling from and, and how, how the pandemic is looking there right now. Yeah, so I'm calling from a little town uh, known as Etna uh, in New Hampshire, uh, sort of surrounded on all sides um, by Hanover, New Hampshire. Um, we currently have six active cases in Grafton County, which is the county in which I reside, and 308 in the state, 10 of whom are hospitalized. Um, we have 438 people who have died um, from COVID uh, in the state, and 25 of those are people of color. Um, and so, you know, I think um, the numbers there um, tell a certain kind of story. I would say affectively, things feel pretty good. Um, we've had a, a nice summer where um, people have been able to get out a little bit. Um, folks in town, we do have mask mandates and things like that in town. Folks in town seem to be careful um, right now. The return of the students hasn't led to a kind of uh, crushing uptick, um, although we do have um, a handful, I think there were five um, positive cases in the, the early student testing here at Dartmouth. Um, you know, so things things feel tentatively okay. I was just up there in February. Uh, I make a trip up every four years. I'm one of the hated out-of-towners who comes in for the uh, <laughs> primaries and those kind of mm -hmm. things that are going mm -hmm. on up there. So I was up in that part of the in that part of the country. And as always, when I head up there, I'm struck by how rural, once you get out of Metro Boston, how rural it really seems. But that maybe that can be a mis little misleading around the way that community works there. What, what kind of politics have defined the community's reaction, even with small numbers? Have there been political struggles there around the kinds of steps people needed to take to stay safe? There have, yeah. Um, I mean, it, it it is the case that um, it is quite rural. Um, there's a fair amount of space. Uh, my little uh, daughter has just entered the room. Simone, do you need me? Or are you okay? It is okay for you to let the cat outside. Yes. I appreciate that. Thank you. See you later, Simone. <laughs> um, so we have had political struggles. Uh, you know, I mean, I think 
in the uh, in the summertime, we had a fair number of folks who sort of suspiciously looked at out of town license plates. Um, that sort of wave of folks fleeing Manhattan was definitely something that we saw a bit of an edge of. Um, we didn't have too many, but a handful. Um, and you know, the folks um, that I met who were part of that wave uh, were um, very mindful, right? They, they knew that they were coming up and enjoying a space that they didn't normally get access to. Um, they felt really lucky. Um, they talked a lot with folks about how they had done quarantine and, and everything had been sort of um, followed according to protocol and they weren't coming back and forth in and out of um, New Hampshire or um, the town. Um, you know, so there's there was a, a little bit of tension. I would say there was significantly more tension um, with the official announcement that Dartmouth would be welcoming back half of our undergraduate students. Um, there was some discussion about that um, over the course of the summer um, as the university decided what it felt like it had the capacity to do. And um, there was, there were significant, um, there was a, a piece published in the paper, the local paper by the town manager about parties that had been happening in town. Um, Cause we have some students who stay over the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of reports of, oh, we were down at X swimming hole and we saw Y number of students, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. snuggled up pretty closely without protective gear, things like that. Um, and then because it took our public schools a, a really long time, in part because um, New Hampshire as a state didn't offer a lot of guidance until quite late in the, the year, uh, the summer, um, we had a fair number of people pretty pretty anxious about the start of um, the public schools. Um, so elementary and middle school is fully in person. Um, there is a remote option available for people. There was a lot of hand-wringing um, about that, I think. Uh, understandably, people were trying to make decisions with not enough information. I think. Um, and then um, the high school, I think, has a certain number of days per week that it's in, um, and then other parts of it are remote. Um, but towns, you know, different towns have taken different approaches here, in uh, even in the Upper Valley. Um, so there's a, a pretty big um, range, I think. Um, and then, you know, on, on things like, you know, the local area um, Facebook pages and community newspapers and things like that, you get a lot of uh, the sort of live free or die impulse mm-hmm. um, coming out, right? People say, oh, you don't like that that restaurant isn't enforcing masking, don't go. Um, and a lot of, um, you know, it, it's, it's, an, it's been an interesting community balance between um, what might feel like shaming and what might feel like information, mm-hmm. um, right? Uh, public information dissemination. Um, so yeah, I would say it's, there's definitely been a fair amount of political discussion. Oh, well, thank you for that sort of context of where you are in the world with this right now. I, I want to have so many things to ask you. One thing just to start out maybe is, is you know, I start with the idea, even though I should know better, that um, matters of great gravity, like life and death, are priorities of the state when it comes to getting accurate information. I just, when I wake up in the morning, I don't, I don't worry <laughs> myself with that. And I probably spend the rest of the day being shown information of how wrong I am starting out with that idea, but I start with it. Sure. Um, and, and so with that in mind, in that article that I read, which I thought you might find interesting and you may have already known that story or certainly the problem with nursing homes nationally, I'm sort of wondering when you look across the landscape of politics today in the United States, where do you see the most acute struggles 
over what's supposed to be an objective action, which is counting the deaths from COVID-19? It's a, it's a great question. And it's almost like a, a suite of questions, right? Um, I mean, the first thing that I would say is that um, counting of the dead has never, ever been objective, right? Um, and the state has never been unbiased um, in its efforts to collect information about uh, the death of its citizens or people who are in the country, um, but perhaps not citizens. Um, and that's, you know, that's part of the the work that um, I do in my book is thinking back to, you know, the, the rise of something like the plague bills and that sort of first flush of, of state interest in mortality and who they were really, you know, paying attention to, right? Um, and in the case of the plague bills, it was, um, you know, people who were listed as citizens and uh, specifically as free men, um, which doesn't necessarily have, um, the connotation that it might in the context of colonial enslavement, um, but it does speak to people's um, uh, sort of fiscal wherewithal, right? Um, so we're talking about folks who can sort of live free of indenture, indenturing um, of debt, um, right, to a landholder of some sort. Um, so, you know, it was, it was usually men of means. Um, and in the UK, it started out as Protestants, um, right? Only the state was only originally interested in, um, folks who were part of the Church of England. Um, so there, you know, significant Jewish populations, significant Islamic populations, uh, or Muslim populations, um, in the UK at the time weren't considered, right, a, a central part of, of those mortality counts. So, you know, I think today um, we see that being continued, right? That um, counting of our dead is is always political. Um, the state um, and you know, I think government officials have always had kind of a range of, of vested interests um, when it comes to counting death, right? Um, I mean, if we're going to be kind of really pragmatic about it, um, in some ways, counting death is about the state's obligation to uh, senior citizens and people who it's it's paying out um, its own debt to, right? And so you think about um, social security fraud and things like that. Part of the reason the state wants to know about whose debt is so it can stop sending checks, right? If we're going to just get down to some brass tacks, right? Um, it's not necessarily this kind of um, we care about our citizens and we want to understand and protect their health. I mean, there is still that, um, but it has always that health argument has always been partially about um, making sure that the the sort of economic engine of the state could continue to run, mm -hmm. right? Um, and initially that was also about who could be mustered for military purposes. I think that is perhaps less so um, now that we're in a, a volunteer military here in the United States, um, but it's never been an apolitical situation. Um, and I think, we have seen that play out in spades. And, and it's for me, as someone who is used to having her work be distant and, and often needing historical translation, it's been kind of uncomfortably real lately, um, right? Where we see that the state is less interested in African-American, in Latinx, um, certainly less interested in, in migrant communities, um, not tracking the death of the majority white relatively wealthy population in the same way um, that it's tracking the death of the rest of its citizens.
we go back to that that earlier case? So, and and talk a little bit about your your book, Numbered Lives, and and um, that case of the plague in London, in the 1666-1667, which at the beginning of this pandemic, I reread Daniel Defoe and was kind of knocked out by that in ways I hadn't expected, things I hadn't remembered there. But you said that the government there was very specific about who counted and who mm -hmm. didn't. Can you build out that context for us a little a little bit? I mean, because again, I, I sort of begin with an idea that that an accurate count is useful at a variety of sort of policy levels that you can't even fully anticipate. But that's reading uh, that's reading a modernity back into the 17th century. That's probably not appropriate. Can you build out that context for us a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So um, Henry VIII, uh, it, the 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 parish clerks had a royal. Um, essentially royal permission to collect um, mortality statistics back into the 14th century. Um, and part of that came out of their original role um, in Catholic churches, uh, singing prayers um, and doing the bead rolls, right? And so the beads were partly about, um, you know, who, who would come into the church and for whom would we pray that had already passed on, making sure that certain kinds of um, memorial activities um, were continued, religious observances. And so the, the parish clerks um, are empowered by the British crown, um, including Henry VIII, to, to be the sole counters of mortality in uh, England. And there's really a focus on London, um, right? The out parishes of London are sort of the far edge. Um, so it's really thinking about like the urban center and not necessarily the entire nation um, or even the, the suite of nations, right? If you think about um, Great Britain um, more broadly. Um, and that, that permission and that mandate um, meant that what they did was they sort of created a system where the, there were a, a, a guild of parish clerks, right, who had the authority to print the mortality bills and to sell them and also the responsibility to report it um, to the national government and the, the city government as well. And within, they then broke that down within parishes, right? So individual parish clerks were responsible for their sort of, we think of a British parish, something like a, an analog to a neighborhood um, or a, a small city perhaps. Um, but the, so the parish clerks were responsible for that reporting. Um, they would collate individual slips or individual reports that often came from what are known as searching women. Um, these women were often wards of the parish of the church. Um, they were often widows, although not exclusively. And um, they were paid actually a, a pretty significant living wage to um, evaluate the bodies, identify mm -hmm. the cause of death, if it was in any way unclear, and to verify, because usually you had families reporting cause of death to the parish clerk. Right. Um, and the searching women would verify that, or in the once you, the plague begins to really sweep through in the 1660s, the rate of death is just so high, right, that there are literally bodies in the street. And these searching women are sent out to identify the cause of death in those particular bodies. And that had a couple of different functions, right? It was both for the reporting purposes for the parish clerk, but it was also how um, the... Uh, wardens and other sort of militaristic police functions in the early part in in early modern britain would then go out and quarantine houses right so if a, a single person in a house was identified as having the plague the entire house would be quarantined it would be locked up and guards would be posted outside to prevent further spread um, so it had this kind of um, 
policing function and this kind of mortality data reporting function. Um, and it had a, some other kinds of social functions also, right? So um, the mortality um, bills could be bought and sold for two pence, um, which mm -hmm. was a, a fairly reasonable price for someone of means. Um, it would be part of like the public news. Um, this is right at the time of the, the start of British newspapers. Um, and also a running tally was printed at the bottom of um, the London mm -hmm. Gazette, which was the, the paper at the time. Um, and those tallies had um, uh, the parish names, right? So it was a, a kind of geography, right? That would allow you to know where it was safe to go and where it was not safe to go because an outbreak was significant. It also had a function, a kind of community function for those who had fled, right? So um, wealthy Londoners fled to the countryside as much as possible where they could be um, out you know, with greater space and cleaner air, not unlike today. Um, and they were expected to send back money to their parishes to help support the indigent who could not leave. Um, so it had both these sort of important um, governmental functions, but it also had these kind of civic functions um, for people who were living in the city um, or who were um, inhabitants of London. I think about the 19th century, you know, in Britain and in the United States and the sort of real growth of industrial capitalism as a period of time in which, you know, the insurance industry gets started, public health gets started, and the function, the demand on sort of building a bureaucracy of counting seems mm -hmm. to grow. I mean, do you see a, a clear, is there a clear breaking point at, at some point, some event-driven break, or is it is it some, is a little bit more um, continuous and aggregate over time that the state just starts to take on greater functions and the demand for greater clarity around these around these issues? Well, I think you get a kind of um, parallel trajectory, right, where you have um, the state interested for, for purposes of managing its population, right, a kind of biopolitical mandate that says we have this group, we need to govern it in the following ways. Um, but you also have the development of the insurance industry, as you're pointing to. So John Grant develops some of those early um, life tables, those very first sort of life statistics and those life statistical practices, right, out of the plague bills, out of the mortality bills. And um, you begin to see a kind of economic case being made both in the government and in private industry for the value of being able to predict um, how many people are going to die, where they're going to die, when they're going to die, et cetera. Um, so there's, a, I think, a, a pretty strong economic function um, that, that mortality counts um, serve um, and that, that there's a continuous thread um, right from the late 16th century up to the, the 21st century. I mean, it's not until uh, the 1830s in um, the UK that you begin to get a kind of state enrollment, um, state gathering of, of statistics on a large national level, right? So the London mortality bills tended to have this kind of more urban focus. Um, it's not until 1900 in the United States that you get the national um, vital statistics system. Um, but all the way through, right, beginning even in the, the 16th century with very first settler colonialist enterprises, you have people using that same technology either to report back to um, London on various colonial enterprises or within sort of local municipalities as they're being stood up um, as a way of, of sort of thinking about urban management um, in very early stages.
and did the military, again, I'm just thinking of Britain and the United States here, did the military always have its own sort of separate um, set of practices along these lines? I mean, was military counting of the dead in some ways more more accurate, more, <laughs> and I guess that tracks back to your earlier point about who actually counts in the society. So whoever was gonna serve in the military was de facto in some separate class, perhaps. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, war casualties are an entirely separate space, um, right? And and in, interestingly, right, um, in military space, war casualty can refer to both um, those who are injured and those who are um, killed, right? So you can, right, thinking about the, the kind of capacity on the battlefield, right? Um, and, you know, one of the things that I talk about in my book, because I, I got, um, very interested in a certain number of artists who, um, one in particular, a guy named David German, um, who was um, doing installations to get at the Iraq war body count, right? Which of course the Iraq war, um, not certified as an official war in many ways, and the US government doesn't count civilian deaths, right? And so we have this situation where um, even military death counts are are ambiguous and highly, highly contested, right? So the the death counts around the Iraq War, um, around Vietnam, even right, are are highly contested in the same way that historians um, really grapple with a high degree of uncertainty in pandemic deaths um, going back to you know the the early plague deaths. So and again that so you have these situations where uh, a combatant you know, a country like the United States, a belligerent country, might have a pretty clear count of the number of soldiers in uniform who had died or who suffered injuries. And yet there's no requirement that they capture similar data for people who are on the other side. That's right. Even today. That's right. There yeah, I mean, I, there's the, yeah, the, ahead, the famous phrase, we don't do body counts, um, right? And it, it, in many ways, it's true. Um, much to the detriment of, I think, everyone involved. You know, I just, I put something together just a minute ago when you were talking too, that I guess I had never really thought of quite clearly that the United States Constitution, of course, demands a census mm -hmm. because that's about power. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't demand, as you said, until 1900. And, and maybe you could say if that's by statute that when vital records are created, that death counts become a function of the federal government. That's a long, that's 110 years lapsed time there. That's a long time when in, when we think about it, so we need to know who's alive, but worrying about who's dead is a separate problem to a certain extent. No, that's right. And for a while, um, the census uh, actually tracks mortalities, but only as reported by individuals who are interviewed by census takers, right? Uh -huh. And so there, there are, um, death schedules, schedules being those sheets that are appended to the, the main pages of the census. Um, at the same time, um, you know, those are, are notoriously incomplete um, and tend to um, undercount uh, minoritized populations in the United States pretty significantly. Um, and, you know, even with the um, instantiation of the National Vital, ah, sorry, Vital St Statistics system. Um, so right, that's 1900. You don't get full registration of all of the U.S. states until 1933. Um, so, you know, uh, the 1918 flu 
is a great example of, of how this just didn't work out particularly well, right? So there were state health departments, Arizona, um, I previously taught in Arizona and did uh, a project on the 1918 flu in Arizona. Um, and the there were state health departments and they were collecting death certificates, right? They had mortality counts. They were sending them to the body that eventually becomes the CDC. Um, but by our count, we went back and read every single death certificate um, for the year and a half span um, of the influenza. And by our count, they were off by at least 100% and maybe as much as 500% if you include Native American populations. Um, so, you know, the the idea that we have had good clean data in the past, I think is a myth. Um, and it has always been this kind of interesting partial system and it, and it has really strange features. So thinking back to the, the piece that you read at the opening, um, while there is a federal requirement that the uh, government collect mortality data, the states are paid by the federal government for that data. So states hold that control, right? And they have their own recording processes. Sometimes they use state-specific death certificates, which causes no end of suffering when you get to a national aggregation uh, situation. But then the, the federal government has to buy that data from the states. Every single time it wants it, it has to go and pay the states for that data, um, right? So the the kind of fiscal infrastructure and, and also technical infrastructure, human infrastructure, um, bureaucratic infrastructure to get it from municipalities, right, from coroners or physicians, um, mortuaries, right, into a municipality up to the state um, has a, a particular kind of, of local flavor, right? And then the mechanisms by which it gets from the state to the federal government um, are varied and um, inconsistent, um, both temporally and in terms of their content. Um, and it costs the federal government money. Another aspect of this that's been much debated and talked about early, particularly earlier in the pandemic in southern states, uh, governors saying, you know, we're worried that normal flu deaths are going to get counted as COVID deaths or that heart attacks are going to get counted as COVID deaths because Democrats want to inflate the number right. of deaths because they hate President Trump. And I don't, every time I even say those things, I sound like a conspiracy theorist, but <laughs> go back and look. There was more than one southern governor that made that, that case. Yeah. Does that have a historical background as well? This sort of uh, using the problem of the count and comorbidity as a as a, a political weapon? Yes. Yeah. Um, so there is a um, certainly in the 1918 flu, um, there is a, a set of discussion, or there are a set of discussions um, about primary cause of death and underlying causes of death, right? Um, and one of the reasons that there's um, significant fluctuation or there's a, a really significant range when historians talk about the 1918 flu is that people still have not decided um, whether or not they think, um, you know, someone who had um, uh, pneumonia under with flu underlying, right? Because the, mm -hmm. the guidelines, right, is that you're supposed to write down the immediate um, cause of death um, and then underlying or the, the sort of subsequent lines on the death certificate, right? right. Um, and if someone doesn't know, right, standard practice is to write a heart attack because everybody's heart eventually stops and, right? right. And so there's, there's, um, there's a lot of um, sort of wiggle room there. And you can see in a pandemic, 
um, you begin to see the, the sort of human strain of, so, of processing so many deaths at a time, handwriting of different um, coroners goes just all the heck. Uh, the, mm. the level mm. of detail in the death reports um, death certificates goes down significantly. Um, you start getting more of the like sort of nurse practitioners. There was a whole um, core of, of women nurses who were sent out to the Western states in particular during the 1918 pandemic to try to help, um, you know, coroners and, and other physicians who were just overwhelmed. Um, you know, and, and even the, the category of disease, right? So the international classification of diseases is a a global agreement about the different causes of death, right? Um, that was something that was started in the late 19th century, so 1890s. Um, and it it isn't until it gets taken over um, by the WHO in 1948 that you have any kind of standardization globally, right? Um, but HIV, for example, was a site of global political disagreement about whether or not mm -hmm. AIDS, HIV, could be listed as a cause of death, um, right? So the right. the even the ICD categories, right? We're now on ICD ten, I think, um, and those have changed over time. So if you're thinking about sort of looking at a long array of death and disease, they're not commensurate. Um, there are of course ways in historical epidemiology to to deal with this, um, but there has always been political fighting over the categories of death who should get to certify a death and how reliable they are and how much those numbers should really be used by the government. British government all the way back in the 17th century had significant fights about this. Just to remind people, you're listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking to Jacqueline Wernemont. If I could just, um, sorry, am I pronouncing that right, or is you it? Are. Do you say mm -hmm. it, Wernemont? Okay. Yeah, um, you got it. So, just to to talk about COVID nineteen and and to talk about scale a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a historian, so I get a little anxious whenever people start talking about sort of like cognitive biases or things that seem to travel outside of context. But just for a mm -hmm. second, I want to linger on this. How much do numbers matter it, in the sense that are there features of our cognitive capacity um, that come out in these kind of situations that we may not be aware of? That when we get past a certain number, we care more or less, or, or we um, apprehend a risk differently based on quantity or based on the delivery, the frequency that we see those quantities, because we are mm -hmm. seeing and I read every day, Monday through Friday, these numbers from Johns Hopkins. I mean, we are consuming a vast amount of information, even if you don't want to, in a transient way about the mm -hmm. numbers of deaths. And I'm wondering about the cognitive biases that we may have about that. I mean, I, uh, I'll preface this by saying not a, not a cognitive scientist, um, so can't speak to exactly how the brain works. However, um, I will say that even as you were reading the numbers, I could feel, right, I work with numbers all, all the time, right? And I'm mm -hmm. used to looking at death counts. Even as you were reading it, I was like, where are those numbers going, right? Like mm -hmm. the hearing the numbers, 
hearing the numbers is, it, it's difficult to process. Um, and one of the things that I talk about in my book is I describe this as a, a process of um, trying to uh, literally use numbers to get a, a kind of sense of control or a sense of power over something that felt really overwhelming. Um, and the phrase that I use there that I borrow from Timothy Race is um, aesthetic rationalism, right? And the idea is that if you can, if you can count it, right? If you can enumerate it, um, that must mean that you know it, right? And there's that kind of enlightenment sense of of knowing, um, of 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 having a certain degree of certainty, of watching the numbers rise and fall, and and feeling a little bit comforted by that, um, even if it's only the comfort of knowing that you should stay home, right, or not go to that particular market or not go to that particular state. Um, so I think there's a way in which numerical counts produce a, a kind of affective reassurance, right? That, that it's okay, we understand this. We might not have it under control, but we at least understand and can describe it. Um, at the same time, the really big numbers are really difficult to get your head around, um, right? They are, um, you know, there are these efforts, uh, Sid Harrell has one, which is the lost city of the pandemic, right? sort of giving the the population statistics of various urban spaces to give people a sense for, you know, if we're talking 194 or 204,000 Americans who are dead, what, is, what does that mean, right? Um, I think that's really hard. It's really hard to process the numbers once they get big. And I think my own sense is that, you know, once you get into the 100,000 range, right, which we passed a long time ago, um, it becomes very difficult to visualize and very dif difficult to process. Um, I think there's also a, a pretty significant numbing effect. Um, and I've done a little bit of work about this um, with the Afghanistan and Iraq wars and thinking about the constant counts of, of military deaths also, right, that when, when we see on a regular basis you know, I, I think that the number right now is that there are still 800 people a day dying. Um, that, that, it's, it's stunning if you sit down to think about it, right? And yet we are all asked to go on with our lives. And so there's a way in which um, our brains have to set that aside in order for us to function, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think I think we're in that right now, right? Um, we're, we're trying to understand what how, how to get our heads around, how to get our imaginations around this number of dead while also feeling like, well, I mean, I, you know, I don't know, people just keep seeming to die and the number just keeps getting bigger. And I think there's a sense of helplessness um, that people have. I think we see the, the, the opposite of that, right? When someone knows someone, right? Mm -hmm. um, I remember I had a brother who was deployed um, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I didn't know anyone else who knew anybody in the military, um, right? And every single death that was reported in the US newspapers just kind of hit me like a ton of trucks. And everybody else was like, eh, well, it's over there. I, I don't really have much context for it. Um, I feel like we've got a little bit of that going on right now too, right? If you know someone who's died of COVID, if you've had COVID, um, there's a sense that these numbers are more urgent, more pressing, more awful, right? Um, than if you feel like, oh, I, I haven't been touched, but I haven't even seen it, right? Um, some people talk about New York City as having really experienced this in a very different way than other cities, right? Which led to subsequent waves in the, the Midwest and the West, right? That people were like, well, we didn't really see it. I mean, it happened in New York and yeah, it sounded like it was awful, but we didn't see it. And New Yorkers were like, 
you know, surrounded by the sounds of sirens and the, the refrigerator trucks, you know, I mean, like, I think there's a real difference if it's not, if it's not in front of you in some way. You know, I've been thinking so much about the Cold War and even it's just what you're describing here. And um, I was thinking about, you know, both the government's civil defense efforts, the government both used both tactics. They both deployed large numbers mm -hmm. to sort of show people like the impact of what nuclear war would look like. But if you go back and look at survival under atomic attack, which was the film and the pamphlet that they put out, it's a story of one family basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and the anti-nuclear movement used also did the same thing. There, you can find mm -hmm. them deploying both things simultaneously. That, to you know, I find that fascinating. And I guess I haven't thought about how that maps on to what we're what we're looking at right now. But I wonder if you have any thoughts about that, and and maybe that sort of moves us into a discussion of what a memorial could or should look like or an ongoing set of memorial practices as we're dealing with this does it does it hinge on these numbers or does it uh, does the number become an abstraction and we and it becomes more about individual abilities to relate with individual suffering with with a single person i know again it's a whole suite of questions for you but i'm just sort of That's curious okay. how, you, how yeah. you even think about this i mean i think it's really tough um and it's i think particularly acute right now because we, all of our mourning practices have been disrupted, right? Um, all of our usual strategies for coping with death have been disrupted and, and sort of virtualized, right? So people talk about what it's like to attend Zoom funerals and how, how um, you know, the, the texture of death and of um, what I think of as like sitting with our dead has really been fractured. Right, um, we we are are in a moment where we almost aren't permitted literally to sit with our own dead, and I think that's um, that's something that's going to play out over a number of years um, and in a kind of collective psyche in in ways that I can't possibly predict. I think um, you know the numbers are are crucial, and I watched early in the you know sort of March April space. Um, how important it was for uh, minoritized communities, right? Racialized communities to be able to speak their numbers um, and speak mm. back, right? To the the sort of dominant narrative, right? That, oh, this is just older folks who are dying. I mean, right. we're sad, but also it's okay. And for, for black and Latinx folks in particular um, and indigenous people, right to be able to say actually no the numbers here are disproportionate they're way out of scale um that's i think that has been incredibly powerful right and so there are places where the numbers are really crucial um i think there's also you know something to be said for numbers as a, a an opportunity to not violate privacy um i've been doing some work on um the history of eugenic sterilization in the United States, um, which is covered still, those records are covered under HIPAA laws. Hmm. Um, and in some of those instances, the, the historian in me wants to be able to tell those personal stories, right? But we can't right. um, because that would be a violation of privacy. Um, or it's unethical to do so because it, it perpetuates trauma down a generational line, um, right? For folks who didn't necessarily know that their grandmother or mother um, was sterilized forcibly. Um, and so numbers are a way of, of permitting a certain degree of privacy. 
um, right, while still also telling the, the story. And I think that's an interesting space right now, um, you know, where we're thinking about public health directives, right, and how much we need that, we need good public health information, but we don't necessarily want to say, oh, hey, that person down the street is the one, right, who has it, because there's all kinds of implications that can go with that. Um, you know, so I, I think in terms of our, how we mourn, I think it's very difficult to mourn a number, right? We don't mourn numbers. We don't mourn data. We mourn the loss of people. Um, and so I think, you know, there's a reason that you read something that was a little more personal at the beginning. And it's because at a certain level of abstraction, we aren't as impacted. And that's part of why we abstract, right? In order to be able to survive, right? To be able to continue functioning. But at some point, we've got to return and mourn the things that have been lost. Um, and I, I really, I do wonder how we will do it. I wonder as we approach or cross, depending on which data source you're looking at, the, the 200,000 mark, um, where and how we will mourn this. Um, and I worry, you know, people, historians of the, the 1918 flu, um, comment about how quickly it left the public discourse after mm -hmm. it passed and how few people remembered, right? And I worry that, that we're set up for a similar situation here. I just want to underline something you said just a minute ago, make sure I understand because it, again, it speaks to the sort of divergent politics of the mobilization of the numbers, which is to say that if in minoritized communities, I mean, there's this concern that if you come up with a sort of a national story of loss, and maybe there's one or two people whose individual stories come to stand in for the suffering of the nation. We can think of lots of examples of that in previous mm -hmm. disasters. Um, that that could blunt what are real important calls for need in certain communities where you might actually prefer to have the anonymized number. Mm -hmm. Is that, did I understand correctly that, I mean, okay, I mean, that's such an important point to make. Yeah, and I think, um, right, that's part of what you were saying earlier about the the both. Right. Um, right. We, we can't do just the individual. Right. And we can't do just the big number. Neither is sufficient. Um, and and I personally don't think we can do just the two dimensional. Right. Um, I think we have um, a, a, a need. And this is um, you know part of my art practice, trying to wrap my head yeah. around some of these things. Right. Yeah, is sure. um, thinking about three-dimensional installations, right? So I've been doing sonifications, I've been doing um, haptifications, right? Making it playing data so that you can feel it um, in mm -hmm. your hands or through your skin, um, but also doing things with textiles and, um, you know, mourning braids and things like this so that we have a sense of, mm -hmm. of the three-dimensionality of death, right? And, you know, you, when you, if you think of sitting with the dead, as something you do in front of a screen looking at numbers. Um, that doesn't take much time and you're not necessarily, um, you're not necessarily asked to really take that in and synthesize it, right? right. Um, part of what I like about things that are sonic or haptic or, or um, experiential or some group of all of that is that they tend to be durational, right? They take time. Um, you know, so there was a, a recent set of tweets about um, the ringing of the National Cathedral Bell, right? Um, so rang 200 times for every one 
one ring for every 1,000 deaths. Um, and several people followed up with, it should ring 200,000 times. And the fact that that will take more than two days matters, right? It should just keep ringing. And it should ring and ring and ring, right? Um, until the dying stops. And you know, we have accounts of that happening in during the plague in London, right? The constant bell tolling. Um, and David German's installation that I mentioned, which was one of the sort of jumping off points for my book, right? People were asked to sit inside of a, 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 a sort of cope-like space with a, a very large bell. Um, this is the Nicholas Shadow installation. And it would ring every time someone, a, there was a civilian casualty in Iraq, right? And so you literally feel it resonating in your body, but also it takes time, right? And you don't know when it's coming. And there's this kind of awful sense of anticipation and anxiety um, that I think the two-dimensional number doesn't give us. Is there, so, I mean, I was just thinking of, of what, again, the politics of our moment and that, <laughs> very provocative idea you just put out, you know, like ringing the bell 200,000 times or something so that the duration of it also gives us the scale in, in time as, as well mm -hmm. as in sort of numerical. And we feel it through the passage of that time. But I can immediately imagine some people pushing back and saying, well, you got the time, you got the number wrong. So you got the memorial wrong and you're making us feel bad about something that, I mean, this is some of the critique of the, of the mm -hmm. Vietnam Memorial has, has been along those lines. Why are you trying to make us feel bad about all these names listed here? Mm -hmm. The essence of democracy or the essence of being an exceptional nation, and I'm characterizing here, okay, um, is that we move beyond those numbers. In fact, our will, ability to overcome that is what's unique and should be celebrated. And I know, I guess I can anticipate at one level what your reaction might be to that, but, but really what is your answer to to that in terms of memorial practice. Is there some way to bridge those two points of view? I think the folks who would argue that that's someone, and I'll even take that as my own, uh, that that would be me trying to make them feel bad, um, reside in a, a space of extraordinary privilege where they were untouched mm. by those deaths initially, right? Mm. Um, Vietnam Memorial is a great example. Right, um, the the families who lost, right, their husbands, wives, daughters, sons, brothers, sisters, those folks didn't have that luxury, right? They don't get to not feel bad, um, and for them, right, the duration of that is a lifetime, right? They're, you know, people talk about the way that the loss of a loved one impacts you, and it it doesn't just go away, right? You learn to live with it. And I think there's a way in which, as a nation, we ought to learn to live with our losses, right? Not to act as if they don't exist, right? We've seen, um, you know, recently the the significant traumas that's that remain embedded inside of the nation when we haven't dealt with the losses from uh, the enslavement of African Americans in the Absolutely. United States, right? Yeah. Th those don't go away. Those wounds don't go away. Um, the only thing a nation can do if we're going to have a kind of national discourse is, is learn to live with that, right? Um, and I think that, uh, you know, if someone says, I don't want to think about that, I don't want to think about it either, right? I mean, I spent the first 
I don't know, two months of the pandemic, braiding memorial braids for every person who died until my hands couldn't keep up, right? And it's far outpaced my human capacity at this point, right? So now I'm trying to think of, of new kinds of installations, new kinds of artifacts, right? Um, because I literally can't sit with that many dead myself, right? It exceeds my human capacity. And I think if we don't recognize that those realities are what's at stake in failures to share information, failures to notify, failures to take seriously science, right? Um, if we don't grapple with the actual human cost, then I, I really do. I mean, I, I think we're doomed to repeat it, right? Um, I think in a, you know, in a world in which we act as if those deaths didn't happen, we've, we've erased those people from our lives and from our history. And that's, that's an artificial privilege that will ultimately collapse. It will eat us from the inside out. As you were talking, I was thinking of Ai Weiwei's memorial to the Sichuan earthquake dead. In, in, so you have an artist. I'm not sure if you started as an academic or an artist. So I'll just start, let me just tell that. As Ai an Weiwei. academic. Okay, so he started as an artist. I mean, he's mm -hmm. an artist, mm -hmm. but he started and, and he took that artistic practice, but he went to Sichuan, he found out they couldn't get a count of the dead. Mm -hmm. And so he collected it as mm -hmm. best he could. And then he be, he created it, he's done a lot with it since then, but one of the installations was just put up on YouTube and it was just a scrolling list of names. And just as you said earlier, it's the gravity of sitting there watching it, it takes a long time to watch on the mm -hmm. first anniversary. And of course that made him even more politically unpopular in China than, than I'm sure he was. But so you have this, but in your case, you have the, the inverse, you have an academic who comes at these things analytically, who's now describing an artistic practice because the analytic was not strong enough to, to move it. Um, how do other people learn to merge those two practices? I guess I'm asking you to give up your, <laughs> your trade secret here to a certain degree, I, but I, I feel like it's the merging of those two practices that offers a way forward. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know that I have any secret sauce, right? I think, for me, it was about trying to figure out my way through any number of, of things. I mean, I, I I couldn't write a dissertation without doing certain kinds of art practices to understand where I was trying to write. So I'm not sure that my, my ways are the ways that everyone needs, but I do think that, uh, I think there is a long history that is rooted in patriarchy and colonialism and a certain kind of mode of knowledge making that says the, the written word and the written number can give us everything we need, right? And there are, there are myriad other practices that say that's not enough, right? It's not enough. Um, what I can feel in my skin, what I can hear, what I can smell, um, these things matter to how I understand the world. Right. And so for me, um, you know, that that kind of embodied cognition is really important. Um, I think for people who have experienced the the primary loss, they already have that. Right. They remember the smell of, of people. They remember the scene of of an event. Right. If you think about the recent 9-11 um, discussions. Right. People remember what it was like to be rushing through Manhattan, right? Choking on smoke as the towers fell, right? Those are those are visceral memories. They're not just 
intellectual memories. And I think, um, again, we learn to live with those textures of things that are no longer with us, right? And they inform things going forward. And so I, I do think we need to find ways of merging them and we need as many of them as is possible because I think those are gonna be different for different people, right? Some people are gonna find that sounds, you know, literally resonate. Um, other people are going to find that something where they, I tweeted earlier today, we'd need a forest of 500 acres if we were gonna have a, a, a memorial forest, right? Based on how uh, the, the tree density in an average forest. You know, some people are gonna need to walk 500 acres, 600 football fields, you know, like we're gonna need as many of those other ways of knowing as possible if we're going to learn to live with our losses rather than to pretend that they don't exist um, and run the risk of them sort of, as I said, hollowing us out from the inside. You've been listening to COVID Calls. You can catch COVID Calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Tomorrow I'll be talking to Charles Cairns about medical education in the time of the pandemic. Charles is the dean of the medical school at Drexel University. So we'll see you there at that time tomorrow for that. Jacqueline Wernemont, uh, I hope you'll come back and talk about the art and maybe show us yeah. some of the, what you've been making. I know you also have a life and teaching and research and other things, but <laughs> I've learned more in this hour. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, five o'clock.